Listen up. I want to tell you all about Fracture. Fracture turns your digital images into beautiful glass prints. That's right. They print your photos directly on glass, transforming your memories into handcrafted, frameless prints. Absolutely gorgeous. Beautiful thing to have. Fracture helps you focus on the moments that matter most by turning those favorite memories into beautiful glass prints. And prints come in multiple sizes, no frame required. Glass prints also make unbelievable gifts that your friends and family will never, ever forget. It's a home run. Fracture prints look incredible. You really need to see them to believe it. Upload your photo at FractureMe.com slash Rome to print your photo today on glass. And we've got a special deal for you listeners. When you visit FractureMe.com slash Rome and you enter the promo code Rome, you'll get 20% off your order. FractureMe.com slash Rome. Enter the promo code Rome and save 20% off your Fracture glass print. I'm hyped on Fracture and I do appreciate their sponsorship of this podcast. His third at bat, he's taking the sombrero, he's back, and he stands up on the top step and he says, Throw me a goddamn fastball, you sissy. Throw me a fastball. You throwing everybody else fastballs. You nothing but a sissy and a pump. Throw me a fastball. What's cracking? Welcome to episode 138 of the Jim Rome Podcast. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you checking out our ultimate side hustle. And today, my guest is a three-time World Series champion, a Roberto Clemente Award winner, an Oakland A's Hall of Famer. It's Dave Stewart. Now, understand this about my guy, Stu. He has always been one of the most thoughtful and one of the most articulate people that I've ever spoken to. And you're about to find that out yourself if you have not heard from him previously. I am pumped to talk to Smoke about the 89 championship A's team, get his thoughts on baseball playing through a pandemic, and what influence the black rights movement in the East Bay had on his life in the 60s and 70s. This is a conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed having, and I cannot wait to bring this to you. So let's get right to it. Episode 138 with Dave Stewart starts right now. Dave, it's so good to have you back on the podcast, and I would say under normal circumstances especially, but this is a really troubling time. I know your mother passed away in the past 24 hours. I want to first say, Stu, how very, very sorry I am for your loss. It would have been so understandable for you to want to catch up with me another time, but here you are. So how are you holding up? And if you can, can you tell us about your mom? What was she like, Stu? (laughs) My mom was, um, she's a lady from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, and you know, in New Orleans, they know how to have a good time. Uh, and my mom, um, she passed away yesterday at, uh, 92 years old. And, um, I mean, what can I say? Um, she had eight kids, worked two jobs. My father passed when we were young. Um, and she made sure that we had, uh, everything that we needed. Um, she, uh, was the strength and the force behind um, pretty much everything that I did in my career. Um, she was huge support um, for everything. Um, you know, I, I was um, telling my wife that um, when it came to my mom, um, I hit the lottery, I guess is the best way to put it. Man, it's so nice. That's really beautiful. I wonder, Dave, like, what were the last few months like, for instance, with your mom? For instance, how much did you learn about yourself and your mom in those last few months? Well, 
in the last few months being being with my mom, you know, I learned quite a bit. Um, all uh, the first thing that I obviously learned is where I got my strength and my feistiness because my mom was a is a feisty and strong-willed woman. Um, that was the one major thing that I learned. But you know, when you're sitting with with your parent and um, you know that their time's not going to be very long. Um, you also learn things about yourself and what you're capable of doing in difficult times and how you'll handle uh, certain situations. And I would like to think that in this particular case, um, I did everything that I possibly could do to make my mother's last days here on this earth um, as comfortable as they could possibly be. And then also, Stu, you tweeted earlier today, please take the time while you have the time to love on your mother. I mean, it's so important, isn't it? It is. And, you know, where that came from, Jim, is, you know, I've spent a great deal of my time um, away from my family in general. You know, um, early on I, I was with the Dodgers and playing in Texas and spring trainings and winter balls and in the minor leagues playing in different cities. And, and then you get home and it seems like there's always something to do. And, you don't take the time to realize the things that are really important to you and the things that are special to you. And my mother, um, over the last five or six years, has lived right around the corner from me. And I think I've seen her quite a bit, but when you live right around the corner, you start to realize that it's still not enough. And you know, when that time comes, when that moment comes and, and she's no longer there, you look back on the times that you, you could have just stopped by for five minutes and just say, hey, Mom, I'm on my way to X, Y, and Z, and boom, 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 I'm just checking on you to see how you are. You give her a kiss and a hug, and and you go about your day. And so that message was, was simply about even in the middle of the the biggest rush that you may have, Take a minute and take some time and, and make sure that you love on her because, you know, most most people will admit it and some won't, but who we are as men, the, the tenderness and the softness and the sensitivity and even the, the quiet strength, that comes from your mother. It's such a powerful message, and it's one that I needed to hear. I think it's one that everybody listening needs to hear, Stu. Once again, I am so, so very sorry for your loss, but I so appreciate your thoughts on this. And, uh, you know, it's this is something as I, I lost my father at a much earlier age, and he had cancer, and I think we all learned that it's something you never really get over. It's just something you hope to get through, and I, I know that you will. And I know she's looking down. I know that that will always be that conversation. You know, if I could ask you also, Stu, it's just it, it comes at such a troubling and challenging time in this country as it relates to COVID and race relations. You actually had a COVID scare yourself. What happened? Oh, well, well, first, let me say this. Sometimes you have to make the best of bad situations. If not for COVID, I probably wouldn't have even have been here to experience the great and memorable experience that I have with my mother. So that's the positive from the negative. But, I mean, once I got back from Mexico, I was down in Mexico um, doing some work down there with uh, with uh, Team Monclova, and I gotten back. Um, I was sick, and, and, and 
coming coming in, uh, my wife, she says, we, we need to stop and get you checked. And so we ended up going to um, the local hospital here, and um, we were able to get check, a COVID check, because um, they asked that you have symptoms, which I did show symptoms. And so I was able to uh, sit there, get the test, and quite frankly, after a 10-day period of time, they said that I had tested negative. Um, Later on, because I still remained sick and I still felt symptoms, um, for about another week and a half um, before I even felt halfway normal, you know, I ended up going back and, and speaking to my doctor, and he thought that maybe there was a, a, a false negative um, is what he thought. But, man, I was I was extremely sick, um, quarantined um, off and on with, uh, with, with fever. And, you know, I've I've got lung issues already with asthma. I've had pneumonia three times in my life. And so, you know, I was definitely one of those cases that you look at and you say he could be a possibility. So, Stu, how are you right now? Are there any uh, lingering symptoms, anything, you know, people have talked about a loss of taste and maybe some other long-lasting things, any of that? No, I, I feel perfectly normal. I feel perfectly fine. Good, good. All right, so let's talk a little baseball. I got to ask you about the great 1989 team. You and I over the years have talked about that. But as you look back on that team, as I segue, there were so many great players, so many great personalities on that squad. Like, what was it like to be in that clubhouse, and what was it like to be a part of that great 89 team? You know, we had some great personalities on that team. Um, You know, Dave Parker, you know, Carney Lansford, not so much of a a personality, but more of a, a, a guy that policed the clubhouse. We called him the captain. You know, Dave Henderson was a part of that team, and at at some point we were able to bring Ricky Henderson um, to our team. And uh, I got to tell you, it was it was unbelievable to be able to uh, you know put together that mix of guys um, to have that group of guys. And I'm sorry, we we were able to get Ricky in '88, and in '89, you know, we had Ricky, we had Dave Henderson, we had Parker. I mean, you name it, there were Conseco, McGuire, um, and Conseco, when we talk about personalities, you know, when you put Conseco and Parker and Dave Henderson in the same room, it's a comedy act is what it is. But we had we had great chemistry. We, we all had one goal, which was to win baseball games and hopefully win a championship. A well-managed team with uh, Tony La Russa and, and Dave Duncan was our pitching coach and pitching guru and... I mean, we really, in my opinion, when I look at that 89 team, um, I would compare that team to any team. And I know there's been, you know, comparisons of our 89 to the 98 Yankees, and people always pick the Yankees, but I, I really think that that 89 team was special. Dave, I agree with you. That 89 team was unlike almost anything I've ever seen before. And when you mentioned the types of personalities, the enormous personalities and the way everything fit together, I mean, I could do an entire hour with you on every single one of your teammates. It's just, it's amazing. I'll pick my spots. But like, I mean, everybody will come to you and say, what's your favorite Ricky story? Because man, you and Ricky go way back. You've always known Ricky. I have to ask, and you know, I may or may not get there, but I want to know, what's your favorite Jose Canseco story? What's your favorite Josie story? Oh, Jesus. You name one, man. Right? Uh, 
I couldn't even name one. I, I you know, when Hosey, when he he used to get pissed at us all the time. It, it, it was a normal for him. And uh, is that the Roids? <laughs> no, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. We actually, believe it or not, I don't think any of us ever teased him about it because I'm not sure how many of us knew it versus how many of us thought it. But you know, he would get mad at us and. We would be teasing him if he'd get on a plane, and you know poker is prevalent on the plane. He'd get on the plane and and drop five or six grand in a two-hour plane ride. Wow! Then he'd get off the plane and we're teasing him, and and he would get off the plane and and he'd be swearing at us and he'd be calling us hypocrites and telling us how he was going to tell everybody one day what kind of hypocrites we were and blah 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 blah. And Parker used to always tell him. You know, from now on, and he he whipped out this lollipop and a pacifier, and he asked Hosey, "Which one do you want?" He says, "Cause you're just a crying ass baby." Wow! And the whole bus would start laughing. Dude, that that's amazing. Can you imagine? Those are two big boys right there. I mean, <laughs> did they? Did they? I mean, it it's a clubhouse. You guys got to live together. It's a long time. Two of those dudes ever square off or come close to it? Those are two big big dudes. You know what? Um, the truth is, we never. We, there was one potential fight, and believe it or not, it was the littlest guy versus the biggest guy. It was Tony Phillips versus Jose Canseco. And Tony Phillips, though though small, was feisty. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Jose had hit a, hit a bomb, hit a long, long bomb, and was swore that he didn't get it all. <laughs> and that started, that started Tony Phillips off, and... And before I knew it, Tony had him jacked up in his locker, so we had we had to get Tony off of him. I mean, so that's an amazing story. Like we, what's he must have outweighed him by sixty, oh, seventy? Easy. Tony Phillips probably soaking wet was one hundred and seventy pounds at best. Hosey's weighing in at two thirty, and you know how massive he was. But Tony had him jacked up in the locker. We had to get him off of him. That's incredible. And like Tony Phillips, like, Stu, for those who don't remember, man, my man, dude, he ran hot. He ran hot. Like, <laughs> yes, he did. I mean, what what was he like? I mean, really versatile player. But my man was running on different kind of fuel, wasn't he? Oh man, he. <laughs> we were facing. Uh, we were facing the California Angels, and I think it was Langston um, was pitching that pitching against him, and and uh, Langston was throwing everybody else fastballs, and Tony Phillips come up, and all of a sudden he might see one fastball, and then a bunch of breaking balls, and he'd strike him out. So his third at bat, he's taking now, he's taking the he's taking the sombrero, he's back, and, and he's sitting on the he's sitting on the bench and walking back, and 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 he stands up on the top step and he says, Throw me a goddamn fastball, you sissy. Throw me a fastball. You throwing everybody else fastballs. He says, You're nothing but a sissy and a punk. Throw me a fastball. Wow. Oh, he's, he was, you know what, though? Those type of players, that type of feistiness and tenacity, if you are our championship team, those guys are needed. Um, they take everybody else's level up a notch. I mean, Tony Phillips is a great teammate. 
You had so many on that team, too. And he, you know, sadly, he was one of the three guys on that team, Stu, that passed away in their 50s. You mentioned Dave Henderson. What about Hendu? Like, Hendu was another huge, huge personality. I wonder if that personality, man, his charisma, his exuberance, his enthusiasm, did it kind of overshadow how good of a player he really was? Did he get credit for how good of a player he was, Hendu? I really don't. I don't think he got as much credit as he should have at all. I mean, we know about his heroics in the playoffs and coming up with the big hits and big home runs in the playoffs, but Hindu was was the general out there. He played center field for us. Um, he was accurate with his throws. He always threw to the right bases. Um, he kept both Ricky and and Hosey on their toes and in line as the as the general out there. Um, in the clubhouse, he always knew what to say and when to say it, and it, it was almost on time the right thing to say. And then the second part of it was he was funny. I mean, he was a great, great character, um, always keeping you laughing. I mean, he was just a great teammate, a great teammate, a great human being. Stu, the other guy who passed away, unfortunately, in his 50s was Bob Welch. And Bobby Welch won 27 games, man. He he was a horse now. What, what, what was it like knowing he would take the ball every fifth day? And what made him so popular in that clubhouse? Well... You know, my time with Welch, it goes back to the Dodgers sure. days. And from that day that I met him in, in 78 until the time that he, he passed away, what made Bobby unique and special is Bobby, Bobby, Bobby never changed. He was always just a great guy. And I'll tell you how great a guy Bobby was. <clears throat> Bobby Welch, and this is a story, but that I heard, so I'm, I'm giving it to you third hand, but I'm, I'm giving it to you from Kurt Young, um, one of my teammates. And Bobby Welch and Kurt Young were in Arizona one day, and they went out for a bike ride. Bobby had just bought a brand-new uh, bicycle. It was a dirt bike, um, but it was a really, really nice bicycle. He and Kurt were riding. They were in the, the second mile of the ride, as Kurt put it. And Bobby saw a homeless guy standing on the side of the road. Um, and Bobby walked up to the guy and he asked him, he said, Old Timer, how are you going to get around? And the guy says, I don't know. And Kurt told me at that moment, Bobby gave him that bike that he had only had for about a week. Incredible. And that's, the per- that's the personality of Bobby Welch. Bobby was, was a team player. He was one of the best teammates that I've ever had, both Dodgers and the A's. And just a, a, a great human being. What an amazing conversation. My sincerest and deepest thanks and gratitude to Dave Stewart for keeping our conversation on his calendar after the terrible news he received about the passing of his mother only 24 hours earlier. Once again, my thoughts and condolences are with him and his family. I appreciate him so much, and I'm so glad that he was able to share some thoughts on his mom right off the very top. I want to thank you all for listening. Quick podcast programming note. I will be back in two weeks on August 19th for episode 139. One more summer roadie to Wisco, and then we are going to jam right through Thanksgiving. So I will catch you in a little bit. Until then, here are your voicemails. Still, in 89, of course, the world shook. Now, you've got your Bay Area series, the A's and the Giants. And as somebody who grew up in the Bay Area, I can only imagine what that meant to you. But when the world shook, the entire world got a look at what all of us who grew up in California fear the most, the big one. And that was a big freaking earthquake. What did you think when you felt the earth start shaking? What do you remember about that day? You know, what I remember is 
we were in the clubhouse, me, Parker, Hindu, were in the clubhouse at the time and doing what we always do pregame, telling jokes and goofing off and, you know, getting loose as best we can before the game. Obviously, I wasn't pitching that, that game. I had pitched uh, two days before. Um, so we were getting ready for the game. And then Harvey, the clubhouse manager, comes in. And he says, we need to get you guys out of the clubhouse. There's something that's going on on the field. He says, so don't go in the parking lot. Make sure that when you, when you, when you leave the clubhouse that you go on the field. And then when we got out on the field, man, you could hear the, the fear um, in the fans. And you could see the light standards at the ballpark. They were still swaying heavily. And uh, there were already a parade of police officers and highway patrolmen and firemen on the field escorting fans out of the seats and into the parking lot and our families onto the field. And, uh, you know, you could hear on the walkie-talkies that the Bay Bridge had collapsed and that the marina district had caught on fire. And... uh, then they were rushing us to our cars, and we had to figure out how we were going to get back to the stadium. And um, the San Mateo Bridge had uh, was not serviceable, and so we had to go across to Dumbarton. And obviously the, the freeways were, were packed full of people. For six hours it took us to get to the other side of the bay. Mm. And, um, I mean, that's what I remember most is the the – the sound of fear and disbelief, um, it, it's just unbelievable. And, you know, back in back in those times, Jim, we didn't have the best of cellular service at that time, and all of the phone lines were down. I didn't know where my family members were because none of them were escorted on the field. And so, um, you know, it was, it was just chaos. And scary, really, really scary. So I want to ask you, and you, you tell me because you know him better than I do, but I'm, I'm curious about this person. I'm not sure the sport or maybe any sport has ever seen a player or a talent or a presence or a gentleman quite like Sandy Koufax. There's just this, this aura and this mystique, and he was just, just Sandy, right? Just Sandy. Like, what do you make of Sandy as a pitcher and as a man? Well, I can tell you this about Sandy the man and Sandy the pitcher both. You know, in 1976, when I was just learning to pitch, I was a converted player from a catcher to a pitcher. My first year pitching was 75, and then in 76, I was invited to instructional league for the second time. I didn't have any success, wasn't getting anybody out, um, and my record for the two years was I didn't have a, a win. And so in 76, um, Sandy was assigned to me, um, and... and he brought me down in the bullpen and broke my mechanics down, and we, we, we just redid everything. We did a remake, and when people ask me where did the, the stare come from or the lowering of the cap, that's one of the things that Sandy told me. He says, I want you to get on the mound, and you stand up there, and he says, lower your cap to the point that you don't see anything but the shoulders of the catcher and down. And that's what I ended up doing. And then I ended up throwing strikes. Um, and that season, the 77 season, um, I ended up winning uh, 18 games and losing four. And, you know, Sandy was, 
he was the key to that. Um, he was the guy. And then in 1982, I was struggling at the major league level and not getting people out in that first half of the season. And Sandy had asked me if I threw a two-seamer, which I didn't. And he says, look, this is I'm going to show you how to throw a two-seamer. Now, anybody that's seen Sandy or shaken hands with Sandy knows that his hands and his fingers, though Sandy is not a big man, he may be 6'1 at best, but Sandy's got huge hands. And so when he shakes your hand, feels like his fingers are all the way up to your elbow. <laughs> so he showed me a two-seamer that looked to me like a split finger. And so I ended up doing exactly what he showed me to do, and that's how I formed what eventually became my forkball and ended up having a, a successful 1982 season. You know, Sandy, as a man, I think he admires the peace and quiet um, that you should have, and he's not one for notoriety or the celebrity. Um, he loves basketball, and if he has an opportunity to give you something that will make you successful and keep you in the game, um, he's more than willing to do that, and that's what he did for me, and I'll never forget him for that. Well, great, great stories. Dave, you and I, before I let you go, you and I can do an entire, and I want to talk about your business also off the field, and I'm going to get to it in a minute. You and I could do an entire show on this, but you were recently part of a panel earlier this month called Race in America, a candid conversation, which was hosted by NBC Sports Bay Area, and you were joined by a couple of current black big leaguers, Jalen Davis and Edwin Diaz. Again, you and I could do an entire program on this. I'm curious, you grew up in East Oakland near the headquarters of the Black Panthers, the first Muslim mosque. It was opened by Malcolm X. There was a time when the Symbionese Liberation Army had a presence in town. I'm curious, what kind of influence do these groups have on you as a kid and even as a young man? Well, I mean, the, the first influence for me was, was the Black Panthers. And, um, you know, in the early 60s, um, black people in the Bay Area, they weren't very well respected by law enforcement Um I mean, it was it was brutal how we were treated. And there were demonstrations all the time on the other side of the bay, not the other side of the bay, but the other side of town, which is Berkeley. Um, and Cal Berkeley was notorious for demonstrations for, you know, doing things in the right way, standing for justice. And so the Black Panthers gave us the first real opportunity to be respected and treated fairly um, in the things that they stood for. And, you know, you may not always appreciate how they did things, but it was effective. Um, And they worked in two different ways. Sometimes it had to be by strength and by force, and sometimes it wasn't. But when force was needed, um, it gave us a presence in the the Bay Area and in the community. And um, so I respected that. The Symbionese Liberation Army, that was a totally different different thing for me. Um, you know, and the Patty Hearst part of it I never understood, um, but I did understand uh, the fact that they used that vehicle to get food for people who didn't have it and to, to bring in clothing and those different things, um, the necessities for people who couldn't afford it. 
um, I don't know that I necessarily appreciated uh, the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. I didn't appreciate the kidnapping of Patty Hearst to to make that happen. Um, but from that, you know, they were able to to help a lot of people um, in in that sense. And then when we talk about Malcolm X and the mosque that was on 67th or 68th and East 14th, um, as a young kid, I, I went there and. You know, what I learned from, from the Islam nation is that there was no division um, in the black race. They stood powerful and they had morals and they had things that they stood for that we as as a nationality and ethnic group of people should live by and should honor. Um, you know, and I know that back in that period of time of Malcolm, people felt that the Islam nation did not like the white race, I never looked at it as them rebelling against the right white race, but more of them empowering us as black people and having us understand that we have resources and we have the ability to stand together and be powerful and use our resources to build and become better um, as as people um, is what I learned from that. And so um, that was my upbringing. And you know, I took bits and pieces from all of it, along with the foundation that my mother and my father um, gave me and my upbringing to try to do the right things um, in my adult life um, and treat people in the way that I wanted to be treated. Mm. Now, Stu, you love baseball. I love baseball. I'm guessing anybody listening to this conversation loves baseball. When you consider what's going on and the fact that just now Major League Baseball is putting a pause on the Marlins season after the outbreak in their clubhouse and that the cases continue to spike across the country, you know how very scary this is. Bottom line, do you feel like, do you think that we should be playing baseball right now? You know, Jim, that's a, that's a tough question because the fan in me and the love of the game and what I've experienced as a player and how it heals the country when you're having your most disappointing periods of time says we should be playing. But I think that it's becoming a little bit more obvious day by day. You know, the Marlin situation is is unfortunate, but the, the, the truth is it's, it's a reality of what we're facing in this country. Um, there are people across this country that are suffering from the virus, people who've died from the virus. You know, we've talked about we've talked about social distancing and wearing a mask and making sure that you cover your eyes and you clean your hands and you know the the protocol and the practices that you need to try to be safe. It doesn't ensure that you'll be safe, but it gives you a chance to be safe. So what we're facing right now is is what we're facing in this country and I think that Major League Baseball is going to have to do one of two things. They're going to have to look at a different protocol to keep these players safe and their families safe, or they're going to have to consider not finishing the season. But, you know, you can't continue on. Now the Marlins have 17 players that have tested positive and are going to be shut down. And who knows what the next real situation is going to be in baseball. Um, so it has to be considered that you've got to find another way to make the game, to continue to play the game safely 
or are you going to have to consider that this season may not be finished? You know, Stu, you've had such an amazing run and such an amazing life, both on the field and off the field. You had that amazing career. You were a player agent. You were a general manager. And you've done business, a lot of business off the field. You and I have talked about your company, Zenbomb. What is the latest? I understand that you've launched a new hemp line and hand sanitizer. What is the latest with that company? Well, that is exactly it, Jim. Um, you know, with uh, with with the Zen with the Zen company, we are we are we're doing a hand sanitizer now. You know, with everything that's going on now in this world, hand sanitizer is now becoming essential and a thing that people need, and they're going to have to have for many many years going forward. And so. And without even thinking about it, we were approached about hand sanitizer and if we could possibly produce it, and we found out that we could. And um, so now we're producing hand sanitizer. We have the same ingredients as our as our uh, as our counterparts out there, um, but we're priced better. Um, and we're priced at a time we're priced at this time to make it reasonable for people to go in and purchase hand sanitizer. You know, a lot of companies out there have taken advantage of the fact that, you know, there's a shortage of hand sanitizer out there, and they've gouged the prices, and they've made the prices as high as they can to purchase it. Um, Our prices are reasonable, and um, it's a great product. And then you mentioned our hemp product. We are in Rite Aid stores with our hemp product, and um, we are the first hemp-infused product in Rite Aid. You know, and all of our Zen products are all natural products. There are no chemicals, um, and they're, they're, it's a pain reliever that works. It, it works immediately. It, it solves problems with, you know, arthritis. If you've got back pains, menstrual cramps, whatever, um, Zen is a product that's all natural, and it works. Stu, really quickly, in terms of that, like, when I think of you, I mean, you're a throwback. I think of you, I think of somebody like Bob Gibson, you know, like the toughest, toughest dudes ever. In terms of pain relief, what kind of a role do you think that hemp and CBD can play in baseball? And do you think that pro sports should look to replace pills with natural products? I definitely think that they should look to replace pills with natural products without a doubt. Is There's nothing addicting about uh, an all-natural product. There's nothing addicting about uh, about Zen except the fact that you feel so good that you want to keep using it. And I think that that's how it should be. Uh, I think that the world is moving towards all-natural products in all-natural ways to solve our aches and pains. And, and baseball, all sports at some point, they should look at that as a resource to take care of the addicting pain relievers that are out there. So Stu, finally, where, besides Rite Aid, where else can listeners find out about the product and learn more about the company? ZenPainReliever.com. <laughs> Stu, I just had one last thought. I was thinking about you've had so many amazing teammates. I'm going to take a shot here. Like, because I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, I grew up in Calabasas, and I was a huge, huge Dodger guy. And, and I'll say this, as a 56-year-old man now, Stu, and I've done this 30 years, my guy, man, my hero, my idol, and we finally came together years after the fact, was the Penguin, Ron Say. What was it like to play with the Penguin? I love Guino. He's a, so glad to hear you say that, Stu. I'm so happy to hear you he, say it. He doesn't say a whole hell of a lot, and a lot of times he comes off as grumpy, grumpy, grumpy. But it, I would compare him with Mike Schmidt, Nolan Arenado. You pick all of your great third basemen today. I, I compare him with those guys. 
and he could swing the bat. He was in the middle of our lineup, and he could swing the bat. I mean, he was, in my opinion, a great teammate and a great player. I love Ron Say. Yeah, I love hearing that, Stu. Like, I, I'm going to say, like, my man, he didn't have the greatest range in the world. And, Stu, uh, pardon my uh, French, I'm about to drop an F-bomb. Man, Penguin was strong as fuck, wasn't he? You're right. You're right, he was, man. He could swing that bat, man. He was unbelievable. Just Stu. a great, 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 great teammate, man. Pump Unbelievable. Him, pumping me up, Stu. Listen, I, again, Stu, I, I want to say a couple things. I want to say how much I appreciate our friendship. I want to appreciate the relationship you and I have had over the years. I am very, very, very sorry about your mother's passing, but I so appreciate your thoughts and you sharing, and I think you gave us all something to think about. And what can I say? I, I consider you a very good friend, and I appreciate this conversation, Stu, very much, like all the others. Tim, thank you for having me on, man. And let me tell you something, bro. Don't tell people you're 56 because you don't look it. My man, appreciate you saying that, Stu. I think I'm going to go get a workout in. You motivated me. All right, stay safe, Stu. I'll find you soon. Take care, man. What an amazing conversation. My sincerest and deepest thanks and gratitude to Dave Stewart for keeping our conversation on his calendar after the terrible news he received about the passing of his mother only 24 hours earlier. Once again, my thoughts and condolences are with him and his family. I appreciate him so much, and I'm so glad that he was able to share some thoughts on his mom right off the very top. I want to thank you all for listening. Quick podcast programming note. I will be back in two weeks on August 19th for episode 139. One more summer roadie to Wisco, and then we are going to jam right through Thanksgiving. So I will catch you in a little bit. Until then, here are your voicemails. First new message. Hey, what's up, Jim? It's Gerald, a mailman down in Louisiana. Just want to say I really enjoyed that Damon West podcast. It's my favorite one so far to date. Dude, I had goosebumps, chills. Thanks. Keep up the good word, Jim. Out. Message saved. Next message. Johnny in Texas here. Man, this uh, Damon West pod I just listened to, dude, totally had me in stitches. Man, brought a tear to my eye. The dude has been through some serious stuff, but he has the gumption to do the work to make his life better. Jim, it's not often that I'll call you and tell you that you're the shit, but you're the shit. Thank you for bringing that interview. It was enthralling. I'm out. Message saved. Next message. What's up, Rome? This is Justin in Green Bay. And I just can't tell you how much I love hearing Welcome to the Jungle. 20 years ago when I had a snake in college, every Wednesday we'd party and feed my snake before we went bowling. And every time I'd drop the mouse in, I'd turn that song on. And Vito would slither his little head out like he knew it was feeding time every time. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, Justin in Melbourne, give me an idea for your next podcast. Let's have Garrett Rick get on his favorite person, Garrett Rick. I mean, think about the stories going back to the war, back to the time when he was that poster child for sunblock. And then, of course, his great stories with Abner Doubleday playing a game of horse. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim, this is Kirby driving around a UPS truck in Ogden, Utah. I have goosebumps right now. That was the best podcast I've ever heard. It was, wow, that was amazing. We all need to be coffee beans. Thanks, Jim. Bye. Message saved. Next message. 
Jim Rome, Matthew in Oxford, Mississippi. Just got finished with the Damon West podcast. Having done five years in the Texas penitentiary and having come from a pretty similar background as him, I'm white as well. Man, everything he said just resonated on so many levels with me. It took me back to the rec yard and the pod. And I also do prison ministry, you know, trying to help out and go in and speak to people. And everything he said is just right. It's correct. It's people who are white. We need to listen to other perspectives. Damon West, keep doing what you're doing. Jim Rome, you're awesome. Love y'all. Out. Message saved. Next message. This is Tim from Holland. Romy, the side hustle is genius. I first got into it listening to Tim Grover, and next I popped into Jocko Willink, and he was the man. And I just finished Damon West. I've got a full-time job and three part-time jobs, so I'm already motivated. And when I'm going to listen to a motivational speaker, it's got to be somebody that walks the walk. And those three dudes are getting it done. I've got one little request for you. Can you get more women on the show? The last one was Holly Robinson-Pete. That was awesome as well. Thanks a lot, Romy. Peace out. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim. This is Romo from Pasadena. Just got done listening to your Damon West podcast. That was great, man, reminding me of uh, Shawshank Redemption. Be the bean, Jim. Be the bean. Message saved. Next message. Hello, Jim. My name is Mike. I'm calling from Pittsburgh. The last two days I've been on vacation, turned into the show, and all I hear about is clams, squirrels swimming on their backs to save their nuts, and today i got to worry about some dude named Jeff talking about some woman's junk. What happened, Jim? What's going on here? Who are these squirrels' friends? Yogi the fucking bear, boo-boo, squirrels eat nuts. They don't eat leftover pastrami sandwiches. They don't eat Oreo cookies. That guy was gassing us, Jim, gassing us. And he got a golden ticket? Good God, man, what is going on? Message deleted. You have no more messages.